welcome to another episode of Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. Uh, this week, Chuck, what's the story this week? Down at the Fountain Yard. Down at the Fountain Yard. Well, what's great about this week is we again have Joan and Muffin. <laughs> Joan got top, top billing. Whoa. Joan got top billing Whoa. this week. That's right. And the horse That's isn't right. even here. <laughs> See that? I'm not up in the world. Anyhow. So glad to do this. So much fun. Chuck, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Chuck Stead. Thank you, Joe. So we call this one Down at the Fountain Yard. When the cold set in, when the days shortened and the dark gathered around the corner of things, Walt pulled open the outside cellar doors and carried the wooden-framed storm windows up from their summer slumber. The top of each window frame had two metal catches that lined up with metal hooks on the top of the window casings on the house. Through the warm weather, matching window-framed screens hung on these casings. Some weeks before November set in, what Ricky Cramshaw's grandma, for reasons I never really learned, used to call the Mad Moon, well, some weeks before then, Walt switched all the screens, the storm screens, to storm windows. He then brought the screens down to the cellar and stacked them in the space where the windows had been. I asked him why these things were called storm screens and storm windows. He said the windows kept the house warm and dry against the winter storms, and the screens allowed the summer storms to blow through the house to cool it off, without letting the mosquitoes in. This business of changing screens to windows in the fall and windows to screens in the spring happened all over the village. Everyone went about with ladders and rags and bottles of window wash and sometimes patches of screen to mend the holes or cut glass that they brought in town to replace the broken ones. Folks, mostly men folks, talked of windows and screens for about two weeks. In the last days of bridge loafing at the thruway, come the quick cool evenings, folks debated triple-track glass screen combinations over old window switch-and-hang tradition. And by the early days of the Mad Moon Month, a new muffled silence filled the interior lives of the village. As the gas and oil heaters kicked in, blowing their initial stench through the house, the throughway fell back beyond a second layer of glass. This prelude of silence was followed weeks later by the first snowfall, which dropped its white, comfortable whisper on all things. Places familiar to me were transformed into frozen white mysteries. The all-too-regular sound of passing throughway cars thumping concrete spacers in the road was silenced, and the wind, alive and personal and filled with greater expectation, wrapped around me and chilled my wet nose. I became a fur-capped Canadian explorer in the wilderness. Well, it wasn't really fur. It was one of those fake leather flyboy caps with fuzzy rayon earmuffs. But the rayon fuzz was skinned off a rayon polar bear with my Roy Rogers pocket knife. Some cold early evenings, the fresh snowfall seemed to illuminate the night, as if there was a soft light beneath the surface of the ground. Tessie sought the doors she shut them to the outside world, because it was winter now. She told us stories of youthful skating and sledding, but she seldom went out and played in the winter herself. I wondered why. Why had she changed? How is it that she had winter fun long ago before I was around, but now rushed from her car to the back door and pounded the cold out of her legs once inside? 
What had changed? All I wanted to do was go out into the blowing wind and step into the unbroken snow. I went to the Fountain Pond Park. Come winter, this depression in the topography of the village was a center of activity. Its hills that dropped off from 4th Street, Rockland Avenue, and 3rd Street were excellent for sledding. And of course, the old ice house pond at the bottom was fine for skating. My journey was supposed to be in the company of my older sister, Terry. She was the closest in age to me. There were three girls. Wrapped in heavy, insulated, cold-weather gear, I waddled off the back porch and followed her tracks out to the driveway, out to the street. She was no longer waiting for me. Four years older, she was a defiant, spunky little narrow thing. Terry alternately celebrated and denied her little brother. As for my part, as long as I could find her snow tracks, I knew I would catch up. This business of being petted and hugged one moment, as opposed to pinched and shoved the next, struck me as part of the inconsistency of life and not worth worrying about. I crossed over the top of Mountain Avenue and then down along the packed snow of 2nd Street, past the first house I knew, where now a boy, a boy named Jojo from my kindergarten class, lived. I had lived there once. I remembered that. And there, in the middle of the silent snow road, looking at the two-family clabbered house, I I saw heebie-jeebie. I saw my grandfather climb up the front porch steps. He turned around. He looked back down at me, his breath heavy in little sudden clouds snorting up from his flat mouth, his voice clear out into the night. Get the hell out of the street, boy! I ran to the sidewalk, scraped free of snow by, well, the section that was scraped free by Uncle Claude. His house was always shoveled first. Uncle Ma used to say that Uncle Claude shoveled snow with a vengeance. A short way past Claude's house, I looked back. Heebie-jeebie was gone. Of course he was. At the bottom of the street, I turned up 3rd Street, a narrow little bend of road that once, long ago, was the access to the old village ice house and coursing around the bend, I spotted the other kids. It was a small group of adolescents gathered at the top of 3rd Street. No one had yet tried to go down the hill. Early that morning, there had been a slight rain that froze up by noon and was followed by a heavy dusting of some four inches of powder, snow as dry and light as feathers wrapped around over the slick, frozen hill. The nervous gaggle of youth thumped about at the top of the hill in expectation of the next move. Terry was there, plain and thin, especially as she stood next to Cousin Marie. Marie was very, very pretty. Her mom allowed her to wear makeup, just a touch of red lipstick and rouge rubbed into her milk-white skin. Her eyebrows were satin black, but didn't even need a pencil to help them. They, Terry, Terry was different than Marie. Marie's dad, my, my Uncle John, worked in a filling station down on Route 17, as had Heebie-Jeebie long before him. He was a big expanse of a man, mostly bold, rubber-faced, and, well, he carried many stories of corpulent roughhousing with his slow and heavy steps. With Aunt Katie, he managed to produce four daughters. Marie, the closest to Terry's age, was early on identified as the Pretty Stead. This had not escaped Terry's attention. She was already a different shape than Terry was. That is to say, she was somehow fuller and a bit huskier in a way that, well, in a way that the boys noticed. And they teased Terry about her skinny frame. They said nothing about Marie's shape, which was nicely accented by her style of dress. 
Terry and I both wore leggings in the winter. Leggings were a baggy sort of ski pants, not very attractive. They served their purpose. They kept wet weather out, unless you managed to fall off your sled, in which case loose leggings could scoop up half a snow-covered hill. My leggings were too long, pretty much covered up my boots. Walking in wet snow, they would freeze up and sometimes drag a little behind me, leaving monster-sized tracks. Terry's fit better, but she hated them nonetheless. She tucked them into her boots, which affected a sort of bow-legged appearance. Marie didn't wear leggings. She wore, well, wool stockings and a a white skirt that came down to her knees. She had a, a fine furry white hat with long cords, both ending in fuzzy white balls. The balls bounced happily around her chest whenever she turned her head. Her entire outfit was in white, except for the crimson red scarf that wrapped around her neck. Its color was perfectly matched by her shade of blood-red lipstick. I thought it made her look like a pretty vampire. But standing next to Terry, it made her look like a pretty grown-up. Nick Danhauser, a smart-mouthed boy, who was often accompanied by his loud, tough friends, seemed to be showing off for Marie's sake. He kept calling Terry chicken legs, Hey, hey, chicken legs, you lay any eggs yet? (laughs) He had this nasty laugh. It sounded like he was choking or snorting or something. I saw Marie shaking her head, and Terry flattened her mouth in a hard little line as she stared at him. Meanwhile, nobody wanted to be the first down the hill. Not Dan Hauser, or his buddies, on their flexible flyer sleds. Not Marie on her family toboggan, and certainly not Terry in her saucer. Saucers were brand new items at Christmas. It was a round aluminum dish with canvas handles on either side. The handles were a pretense at steering, as the saucer was almost impossible to control. There was a rumor going around that some hateful adult had invented saucers to try to rid us of the number of children in the world. Terry's saucer was a gift from our folks. On Christmas morning, when she unwrapped the foil paper from her saucer, My mom, Tessie, said to her, Now don't you go and kill yourself with that stupid thing. This was the same Christmas I received a stuffed toy snake in a hat box. I had wanted a derby. That's what I requested. (laughs) I got a hat box, but it was filled with a stuffed toy snake. For days, I withdrew and brooded about having been overlooked. I yearned for some adventurous action on my part to once more claim the attention I felt I rightly deserved. And there, at the top of the slick-powdered hill, it came to me. The first one to go down the hill would be a hero. A chilled wind whispered into my ear that I would be a hero. I grabbed Terry's saucer, broke free from the others, and shot down the hill, spinning wildly like a top. Everything was a blur. I heard voices calling out in terror, but I saw nothing clearly. I was beyond them now. It was very fast. The world was changing very quickly. I was separating from all else, and then suddenly I did see something, the tree stump in the middle of the hill. I pulled up on the canvas handles, trying to stop, and went directly over the stump. The saucer sliced its way into the night, and I flew in the other direction without it. Somewhere, far behind me, they all screamed in terror. When earth came back to meet my stomach, I was looking uphill. I was twisting, and the snow gathered up inside my leggings as I now slid down the hill, gathering the snow itself, and I continued my descent to the pond wall. The ground fell off beneath me. I flipped and landed on the ice right on my back, and I spun out into the middle of the pond until I came to a slow stop. 
Having now plowed a trail, it had opened up a path, and Danhauser was second down the hill, and like a rocket, he shot over the tree stump, off the wall, and slammed his runners right across my legs. The metal sled blades tore into my leggings and cut across my otherwise frozen white skin, and, and I rolled over numb. I couldn't make a sound. But then I saw the sight of blood on the snow, and it sent a thick lump up through my throat, and it shot forth a wail of pain that only a child can make. Danhauser jumped off his sled. He howled with delight. He cackled. He kicked snow at my agony, and he mocked my crying. Terry was third down the hill. She did not use a sled or a saucer. She ran. She ran down the hill. Her feet spun in a blur like that of an animated cartoon figure. Kicking up clouds of snow, she charged down the hill, screaming at Danhauser, Stinking! Smelling! Slob! For his part, he held out his right fist stiffly to greet her. Her speed increased as she charged off the pond wall and plowed toward him. His diabolical grin grew back as he shouted something, but none of us could quite make out what he said. I sucked in my misery as she shot over top of me and then lost her balance. Her narrow frame dropped forward and she folded into a single form, straight and lethal. Her head struck him in the stomach. The two of them went down, but she was up quickly onto her feet while he gasped for air, clutching his gut. She pulled off her mittens. She wrapped her bony little white fingers together. And before he could straighten up, she swung her arm around like a great hammer across his back. He was finished. He dropped, sobbing, to the ice, and he managed to cut both lips as he hit it. Two of his cronies started down to assist him, but Marie dispatched them with her toboggan. Some time later, after Tessie cleaned up my wounds and we got hot cocoa, there was a loud knocking at the front door. Walt walked out and found Nick Danhauser, much the worse for the wear, standing beside his father, old man Danhauser. The man kept demanding that I be punished for what I had done to his boy. This despite the fact that Nick was trying to explain it wasn't me. Walt called me to the door, and when Danhauser Sr. saw my size, he was taken aback. Again, Danhauser Jr. told him that it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it was Terry, he kept saying. Things didn't improve when Walt called Terry to the door, and Danhauser Jr. ducked out of sight behind his father. The senior Danhauser, standing out there in the cold night, grabbed his son and shook him. He cursed at the boy and said, No girl can beat you! But it was true. A girl, a special girl, little chicken legs dead, had finished him off. The senior Danhauser turned away in disgust, starting into the night. His boy followed him, but not without looking back one more time at the steads. And somewhere, deep inside, I knew this was not over. To be continued. <laughs> to be continued. Yeah. What happens next? Well, that's the end of season yeah. two. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we, we just, just ended, ended season two. Yeah, we just ended season two. Oh. See, but this gives you something to really think about, as all great stories do. You know, the, you can't walk away from a great story. It comes back and around and keeps jumping around in your head for the next week or so, and, and this is one of those that'll do that. You captured, I think you captured Terry in that one. That's Terry. That's Terry. <laughs> yeah, a fighter. F- foolishly fierce. Yes, yes. yes. And we love her for it, boy. <laughs> Yeah, like riding a horse uh, down Route Fifty Nine, you know. It's... But uh, boy, the way you describe these scenes, I just love it. 
I, you, can, you can see them. You can see them. You can feel them. You can feel the cold. You can see the, you know, the snowflakes coming down when he's looking up on the back of the, you know, from the the uh, podcast from last week and and this week. You know, the 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 whole the the shape of the hill, the absolute danger is everybody looks all the way down towards the pond, and it's uh, a gift. Do you, thank you. Do Do you remember how the Third Street side was the much steeper hill? Yeah, yeah, and there was always the, the the delightful possibility that the pond wouldn't hold. Right, you'd hit the they, pond and go through. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did that ever happen? The worst thing that happened to me was I hit the stone wall with my knee, um, and I got numb. It became a numb knee. Sure, sure. A little spot. <laughs> Th- those those sleds were lethal. Oh, they were dangerous yeah, as hell. Yeah, 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 yeah. They really they're they're just just right for for hitting somebody in an ankle. Mm-hmm. Somebody coming up. I remember that, Muff. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember it at all. You don't forget things like that. That's one of those things that just sticks with you forever and ever. In, in Hilburn, Walt showed the, the 6th Street that went across the road and went up to the reservoir was a long hill. And Hilburners will remember this. It was a very long hill. And Walt showed me, they used to call it a breakneck bend and suicide hill they used to call it both those things because if you went down that hill there was a place where it was a hard left turn and if you didn't make it it was a solid rock wall (laughs) and he showed it to me in the summer and you know we did risky things but that was even riskier but then he told me that their sleds had wooden runners they had these really old sleds so they didn't go as quite as fast you know i guess I, you, you got me thinking about Terry, though. I really liked your sister. She was so engaging, I guess is the word, you know, when we were kids, you know, very effervescent, you know, kind of excited, and right? That smile, though. You know, I mean, Terry mm-hmm. was beautiful, but the smile yeah. just lit up a room. Wonderful thing to see. And uh, I, I can remember just having lots of fun with her and... Whenever I talk about her, I have to say Mary Aggie. Mm-hmm. Can't just say my sister Mary because she called she, Tara, Mary Mary Aggie. Mary Aggie, yeah. yeah. That, well, that know. was her name. It was, yeah. It was Mary Agatha, but we never used Agatha. We just didn't until we came to your house and everybody called her Mary Aggie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I still call her Mary Aggie. So do I. Yeah. So Me do too. I. Yeah. yeah. She's proud of that too because that was uh, that was Grandma's name. Yeah. 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 T- Terry was definitely of the four of us kids. She was the one that was happy. She was one that projected happiness. I don't know if she was happy, but she always projected this sort of funness thing. She, she, we go to school together when she was older than, you know, she was older than me going to older school, but it was grade school and had to get on a bus. And she would say that we'd be left alone in the house and she would say, you know, you're eating that toast too quickly. It's not good for you. It's more fun to eat it more slowly because we'd walk over to the bus and if she didn't want to go to school on a given day and wanted to miss the bus, she would happily con me into being the reason we didn't make it to the bus. And one day she said, you know, I'll eat my breakfast slowly with you eating your breakfast slowly and that'll be twice the slower the breakfast. And she was wink, wink, nod, nod, letting me know. And then we'll have a day off. And we did that a bunch until Tessie and Walt caught, well, Walt didn't care, but Tessie caught on because the school called and said, both your kids aren't here. <laughs> what do you guys remember of that time, Chuck and Terry? Because there's a, more of a space in between. You know, my, my house, <laughs> there were 11 of us and very little space in between, sometimes less than a year in between. Why my father really 
did need to get a job that worked at nights. But at any rate, the, <laughs> but the thing that uh, that I remember is uh, we, you know, we had so much fun, but we were almost all same age in a way, you know, or there'd be groups of us. You guys had a little bit more space, so you a were, lot more space, yeah. really. I have a sad memory. Do you want a sad memory? Sure, go ahead. (laughs) I remember, for some reason, Muffin and I were teasing Terry, which I feel guilty to to this day. I had my Volkswagen, and we said to Terry we were going to put her cats in it, and I was going to drive them to the pound. Really? Why? It was, I don't know. Well, she had too many cats. It was an awful memory. We all have them, though. And what did she do? She believed us? Screamed, cried. She probably yelled. called you a stinking smelling slob. She was very upset. We we managed to do what we were trying to do. We upset her. I don't know why. She must have annoyed us about something. Well, there were too many cats. But you don't do that to your sister. There I, were too well, many you cats. Do. I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Maybe maybe Muffin inspired this because no, she's still doing it. I here. don't think so. They were they were reproducing. There were cats everywhere. I don't. I only remember three cats. I don't know where you get all the reproductions. Yeah, I only remember going. three at any given time. You just say. I cats. remember a bunch of kittens and. Uh, oh, that's the ones that the mother cat killed. Well, a dog. Oh no, shook, the dog. The dog them. shook a muffin cat killed and them. another time though. The dog she, muffin. Uh, uh, <laughs> the dog. <laughs> yeah, see, see, just so you know, at now home, we, we know named a dog after my story. sister. Yeah, we named a dog. Now after Now we my know sister. why she doesn't like animals. <laughs> Which isn't really true, but but the, no, there was a time when one of the cats had kittens in the corner of Walt's desk. Yeah, there the were kittens in the in the folding bed. I remember, yeah. remember that. that. Yeah, there were kittens. Mom, there were kittens everywhere. Mom put the were... bed down and laid, and there was a lump, and it was kittens. Yeah. <laughs> Dead kittens. <laughs> the kittens were a problem. You have to admit, <laughs> not not for long. Clearly, it's <laughs> not. Oh, man. So you PETA folks out there, when you start writing your letters. <laughs> address them to, to Muffin. Muffin. To Muffin. Muffin, Muffin the person, Shay. not the dog. Yeah, don't dress yeah. them to the dog. The dog's long gone. <laughs> Muffin stead Shay. Yeah. Rosie in my family was, was that way. We would do something unkind or inappropriate to one of the little brothers or sisters or whatever, push them out of the room or like that. And then Rosie would come over to me and say, Joey, Joey, you're hurting her feelings. And that was it. I was like, (laughs) She was like the barometer. back. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Isn't that what younger siblings are for? (laughs) To point out everything that's wrong that the older siblings are up to. No, I mean to hurt their feelings. Oh, oh. That's what you do with younger siblings. Come on. Let's be real. I forgot it was you saying this. Yes, you're right. (laughs) So how damaged were you when you got the runners of a sled across your leg? It was on my hips. It was our thighs, rather. It was up here. And I was I was cut, but it was through the, the leggings, which were pretty good padding. So it was mostly bruised. But it hurt. It was scary, you know. Yeah. And uh, when I got home, <laughs> we, I, I went home before Terry got there. I got up, and, and everybody was proud of Terry for defeating Dan. And, and I told uh, uh, Tessie what happened. And she was checking out my legs and trying to deal with But she kept saying, oh, but a sled couldn't have run you over. No, no, they, they just hold still. We're going to clean you. Oh, but a sled couldn't have done. She kept saying no to that. And then Terry came in and said, yeah, this kid ran him over with a sled. <laughs> and Tessie was very upset then. 
And this is what happens when you live in a stupid... She took it out on the town, you know. <laughs> Bullying is something that has always happened. It's a, almost a rite of passage. Like you were saying before, it teaches you lots of things that you bring into adulthood. And in my humble opinion, I think by identifying something that is human nature and then trying to, to stamp it out defeats the purpose of the experience and what you then learn from it. And I'm not saying there should be fights in the playground or you know all of the other terrible things that happen. But when the institution makes a blanket statement without specifics of an event happening, you open yourself up to all of these other issues that make it very difficult to manage. So I guess the shorter answer would be no bullying is allowed under any circumstance, which means the principal is usually very busy. It's like trying to ban books. Yeah, yeah, if you I start mean, something like that, where do you stop? Yeah. yeah. And, and you don't learn as a child that those things are going to happen as an adult too, and you don't know what to do about it. That's right. You have to learn. You learn through trials. Joni, Father Gallagher, I saw him once. There were two older boys in the playground at Sacred Heart, and they were smacking each other around, but they were including other kids, so it was getting pretty big and he came he waded into it and the nuns were saying this is bad we can't have this and all and he grabbed them and he took them into the gym and he put boxing gloves on them and he said now go at it and i mean go go at it boys go at it go on go at it and they were like well we don't want to do this now and he got them to box rather than do the other thing and he was telling them, you know, no, you got, you got, you, you lead with the left okay you lead, your right hand is so you're gonna lead and but he got into it with them and I thought, what what a good idea. You know, he he channeled it somehow because he was contagious. He had this contagious personality, this this priest. And that's the part that's missing. I don't think he's condoning street fights. Right. But he's turning it into a productive skill set and where you can actually come away with a lesson. Those kids, I'm sure, were not the same after that in in a better way. Yeah, you learn how to bob and weave. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Which yeah. is important to, to know. Very important, yeah. exactly. I was always kind of big, and so I didn't have to deal with it most of the time. And sometimes I would be the defender of somebody else. Mm -hmm. It's funny you say that. When, when Walt was trying to teach me how to box, because our, our dad did uh, like amateur boxing in the 30s, all the... All the factory guys, all the Rampo guys did that. And uh, Walt was trying to teach me how to box, and I kept trying to hit him. And he said, no, no, no. It's about not getting hit. It's about what you can do to not get hit. And what happens is the fool that keeps trying to hit you wears himself out. And when he wears himself out, he opens himself up, and then you whack him. Joan, when you worked at Brockway Plastic yeah. back in the day, that was mostly a, a, a man's thing. There were mostly men, mm -hmm. and you were right in the heart of it. What was that like? Were you listened to? I mean, you, you had a fairly significant role in, in that company. Yeah, I started out as a secretary, right? but then I became actually almost everything, and the administrative assistant, but I was in charge of purchasing, I was in charge of the office staff, I was in charge of shipping, and the uh, storeroom, and I bought all the materials. And this was back in the 70s? Yeah, I bought all the, all how, the plastics. How did these men respond the to The men you? responded much better than the women. Really? I had a much easier time with huh. the men. The women were more picky. I have an ice skating story down at the pond. I was not bullied or anything, but I always was like kind of different then, you know, sort of not. I always, it was my own fault. I bullied myself. So the girls 
all had these beautiful white ice skates with the little points on the front, and they mm. used to go to ice capades, and they, like you said, they had the little skirts and the whole thing. I had Dad's hockey skates, <laughs> and all I wanted was skates like the girls. So Dad took me Christmas shopping, and I got white skates with the pointy fronts and all that. And the first time or I went down to use them, all I did was... I was used to hockey skates. Right. So I went to skate, and I kept catching the fronts and falling face down onto the ice. (laughs) So Dad took the skates, and with his equipment, he filed off the points, and then I was fine. (laughs) Perfect. Back to hockey skates, only they were white. He filed off all the points? Yep. Because so, I was tripped. He only needed to file off a few. Didn't matter. He did them all. You know, that Walt. little piece in you the front. Walt. They were all gone. Damn points. <laughs> we can get rid of them. And then Dad used to take us ice fishing with him. And with we the, skated yeah. all over the round. Yep. I mean, all over the reservoir. As a kid, that's the only time I skated was when I was with him ice fishing on Cranberry Lake. And you talked about his pipe. I have a picture yep. of him somewhere with him skating from with the pipe ice in his tip mouth. up to tip up with the pipe. With the pipe yep. in his mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I don't remember him hardly ever without the pipe. He had a groove in his teeth. Yeah, yeah he did. He it was did. as much a part of his face as his smile. He had a lot of pipes. He had a lot of pipes. They were some interesting pipes. He had with one carved. The, yeah, the face. The, the, he had a, one with a, a face of a policeman and a cap on it. Do you remember that? Yeah, and it was like all points. Yeah, I think Julie has his pipes. Yeah, probably. I don't have yeah. them. So yeah. yeah, yeah. I think she does. I think she she took his pipes and his pipe holder. Julie I'm not is. sure why. Brian's wife. Brian so his being her his son. His grandson's wife. Wow. She she couldn't figure out how to how to make inroads with Walt, so she asked him to teach her how to smoke a pipe, and huh. he did. Huh. And we have pictures of the two of them smoking Aww. a pipe together. About that's that. sweet. That's yeah, great. she sweet. sort of met him where he was. Julie has a personality that's not unlike muffins. That's oh, let's have the two of them together. Yeah, it's a good thing. And, and Joan's <laughs> right. If we have the two of them together, it'll get really interesting. I think. So what do you think, Muff? Well, she's coming down soon. They moved to Rochester. They live in Rochester now, but Brian's down. They still are connected to the city, and they don't have any place down here, so they come down, and she's coming down mm-hmm. soon. She does costumes for a theater group. You have to be present for that. I don't oh, know how, yeah. the, it helps. how they yeah. moved yeah. to Rochester. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. This has been fun. Yeah. Thank you very much. We went a little long, but you know what? Okay. It's the end of season two. So. How, many, how many episodes are in a season? Well, we had 12 in season one. Mm-hmm. This is the 12th one. Yeah, I think we're in 12 oh. in season two. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, I always love talking about those times, but mostly about the people that made the times what they were, and, and uh, Terry was one of them. And we always seem to come around to the tall trees, our parents. Mm-hmm. They were the tall trees in our lives. Now we're the tall trees. Hope we're living up to their example. Thanks so much for being a part of it. Season three is just around the corner. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thank you. you. Bye. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. 
That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their 20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions, and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the Children's Chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Children's Chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. MontgomeryBookExchange.com Your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. been listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning, so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story. <laughs>